Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that paths under the herdsman's staff, shall be holy to the Lord. One shall not differentiate between good or bad, neither shall he make a substitute for it. And if he does substitute for it, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. Thanks, Gary. The uh, last few summers, I've had the opportunity to travel down to Fort Davis, Texas for the historic Blois Camp meeting. Uh, Whitney and Sarah Britton go to that. It's great. Uh, It's been meeting uh, annually since 1890. Uh, These ranchers and farming families gather together, and actually now there's about 2,500 people that show up for a Bible study and uh, uh, five days of worship. It's it's truly amazing. And and every year they get together a a Baptist, a Methodist, Disciples of Christ pastor, and then, of course, Presbyterian. I know it sounds like I'm about to start a joke, but really that is what happens. 2,500 people show up, and you do this Bible study. It's just truly amazing. And as a part of that, I've gotten to know the Methodist minister, Carl Rolfs, really well the last few years. He's a great guy. He was a former uh, superintendent in the uh, Methodist church in San Antonio. And he was telling me about this Methodist minister who never had to preach on money. Now, I thought that was, I thought he was kidding. I, I just, I don't know how you could do that because so many of Jesus's parables talk about money. In fact, there are over 2,000 verses in the Bible that talk about money. In fact, next to the kingdom of God, it has been argued that Jesus talks about money uh, more than anything else. Other than the kingdom of God, he talks about money. I mean, it's filled with passages about how we can be good stewards of the money God's given to us. So I asked Carl, how is it possible for this Methodist minister to never preach on money? He told me what he does, this country Methodist minister, what he does is he, he gets with his church, and if the offerings ever get just a little low, he'll tell them, now church... Ever since I've been here, I've never had to preach on money. And I don't think you want me to start preaching on money, because I believe you know what the Bible says about money, and you know how to give. So let's take the offering, and if we meet our needs, then I won't have to preach on money. But if we don't, well, then I'm going to have to start telling you what the Bible says about money, and you don't want that, do you? Remarkably, this tactic works. And uh, the offering's taken, it comes in, and there's never a need to talk about money. Well, unfortunately for you all, I'm a Presbyterian minister, not a Methodist minister, and I believe we should read the whole counsel of God. In fact, I just came back from a trip to uh, Geneva, Switzerland, where the Presbyterian church was born, and John Calvin, the founder of the Presbyterian church, began to preach through books of the Bible. That's the way he wanted to make sure his congregation had a full understanding of the full counsel of God. In fact, I learned that while he was preaching through Isaiah, he had to leave Geneva for about four years where he went to Strasbourg, France. And when he came back to to Geneva, he picked up right where he left off in the middle of Isaiah and kept on preaching because he didn't want to skip a verse. He wanted to preach the full counsel of God and what God has to say about all kinds of things, including money. In fact, in the city of Geneva, there was not a single beggar. There was not a single homeless person. Because Calvin was so committed to teaching what the Bible says about giving and loving and caring for our neighbors, that the people in Geneva knew what to do. And so as we continue our journey through Acts chapter 11, we're going to find that the the Bible does talk a little bit about money, and and so we're going to talk about that today, because that's what Acts talks about, Acts chapter 11. 
But before I turn to Acts chapter 11, I thought it might be good to give a little bit of background on what, what the overall scriptures have to say about money and resources. And it actually begins with the, the passage that we had as our call to worship this morning, Psalm 24. For in Psalm 24, and of course we all know Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Great Psalm. Right after that, King David pens Psalm 24, verses 1 to 2, where it says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. God has created everything. And so all that we have and all that we are is ultimately a gift from God. And our lives, is, are we, we live them out simply as stewards of the time, the talents, and the treasures that God gives to us. And as we look at the Old Testament text that Gary read just a moment ago, we can see in Leviticus that we're taught, called to give a tithe. Now, the Hebrew word for tithe literally means tenth or ten percent. We're called to give a, a tithe, ten percent back to God in gratitude for all that God has done for us. Now, Christians in America will often say, well, I I give a tithe, but the fact is that they don't because the average Christian in America gives 2.5% of their income back to the church. And so when they say they're tithing, unless they're giving 10%, really all they're doing is giving 2.5% because a tithe is literally 10%. Did you know that according to church statistician George Barna, only 5% of Christians in America give a full tithe to their church? In Malachi chapter 3, God actually challenges the people of Israel because they're not giving the full tithe back to him. In Malachi chapter three, verses seven to 10, we read, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You're cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Malachi is challenging the people of God to give the full tithe, the full 10% back to God. And this is really an unusual text because it's the only time God tells us to test him. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, God instructs the people of Israel not to test him. He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And if you remember, when Jesus was out in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, he quotes Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, telling Satan, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, normally we're not supposed to test God, but here in Malachi 3, God tells us, test us, test him. If we will not give back the full tithe, then God will not bless us. Now, I don't want you to think God's a vending machine, that if you give money to God, God's going to give you money back. But the fact is that if you do give, you will be blessed. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about our giving. We shouldn't do it for other people to see. It should be done privately. We should do it in a way that's humble in gratitude for what God has done for us. And he tells us not to store up our treasures here on earth where moth and rust will destroy, but to store up our treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. And then he instructs us, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. As we give back to God, our heart follows and we grow in our faith as we trust God with the resources he's given to us. Did you know that according to Relevant Magazine, if every Christian in America gave a full tithe to their church, there would be an additional $165 billion for churches to use and distribute. The global impact would be phenomenal. 
In fact, here's just a few things the church could do if, if, if everyone gave a full tithe, the church in America. For $25 billion, the church could relieve starvation and deaths from preventable diseases around the world. With $12 billion, the church could eliminate illiteracy. With $15 billion, the church could solve the world's water and sanitation issues, specifically in places where 1 billion people live on less than a dollar a day. Globally speaking, the church in America, we are the wealthiest church by far. We're not the fastest growing church. The fastest growing churches are in Asia and Africa and South America today, but we are by far the wealthiest church. God has blessed us to be a blessing. In fact, Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verse 48, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. Are we giving all that we can? Are we giving God the, the full tithe that scripture talks about? Reminds me of the story of little Timmy who uh, it was given a 10 dimes as an allowance for having done his chores. He'd made his bed and cleaned his room every day that week. And so his mom gave him 10 dimes. And she was trying to explain the principle of tithing. She said, now, because of what God has done for us, we're going to show our gratitude and give one dime back to God in the offering plate on Sunday mornings. So she instructed Timmy to put that one dime in his pocket. And sure enough, they went to worship. And, and as the plate was being passed, Timmy pulled out his dime, but he held on to it with a clenched fist. He wasn't quite ready to give that dime away. Well, the mom could tell that he wasn't going to give the dime away. And so quickly thinking, she whispered into Timmy's ears, quick, put that dime in the plate. It's tainted. Well, scared, Timmy dropped that dime in the plate. He didn't know what to do. And he dropped it in the plate and then the plate went by. And after the service, Timmy asked his mom, mommy, why was that dime tainted? Was it dirty? And mom, the mom said, oh, Timmy, it wasn't dirty, but it was tainted because it taints yours and it taint mine. It's the Lord's. All that we, I know it's bad, uh, all that we have and all that we are is ultimately a gift from God. It ain't yours, it ain't mine, it's the Lord's. So what are we doing with what God has entrusted to us? Specifically, as a church, what should we do collectively together with all that God has given to us? To find an example of what it means to be a good steward, to make the most of the time, the talents, and the treasures that God has given to us as a church together I would encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 11 as we continue our journey through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 11, beginning with verse 19. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit again to guide us in the reading and and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as we pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you inspired Luke to put pen to paper, God, that he might give an orderly account of the earliest church. God, we pray that as we read these words that you might... Continue to open our eyes and open our hearts that we might be transformed, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people say, amen. Acts chapter 11, beginning with verse 19. Listen to the word of the Lord. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. 
So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, the prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christian. Now, why was it in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christian? I mean, we know from Acts 2 that the church was born on Pentecost in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit, like tongues of fire, came on each one of the disciples and they began to boldly preach the good news of Jesus, that Jesus was the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. Why weren't they called Christians in Jerusalem? Why is it that it's in Antioch that they were first called Christian? Let's look again at verses 19 and 21. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The church in Antioch was different than the church in Jerusalem. Because the church in Antioch, they were preaching not just to Jews, but to Gentiles, non-Jews as well. You see, the church in Jerusalem was made up of mostly Jews. And so on that first Pentecost, the Jews began to tell other Jews about, the, well, about Jesus, a Jewish man. And so as outsiders would look at the church in Jerusalem, they would see Jewish men talking to other Jews about a Jewish man named Jesus. And they would think it was just another Jewish movement. But in Antioch, Jews began to share with non-Jews, Gentiles, people from other countries and other ethnic groups, the good news of Jesus. And all of these people came together and began to worship Jesus together, and they realized this is not a Jewish movement. No, this is a new movement, a new religion. And so they were called Christian for the first time. History tells us that the city of Antioch was a very diverse city. In fact, it was the third largest city in the Greco-Roman world with half a million people, over half a million people in population. It lay on the best land route between Asia Minor, Syria, and Palestine. It's now in current-day Turkey. It was on the Orontes River, 18 miles upstream from a seaport. So it was a central place of commerce for Syrians, Macedonians, Greeks, Phoenicians, Arabs, Persians, Egyptians, Indians, and Jews. They all lived in Antioch together. People from all over the known world lived in Antioch. The church in Antioch took advantage of this opportunity and began to preach the good news of Jesus to everyone, to anyone who would listen. You know, the city of Amarillo is becoming pretty global. I don't know if you know this, but we have the highest percentage of refugees per capita than any other city in the state of Texas. And the state of Texas welcomes more refugees than any other state in the country. We have refugees and immigrants moving to Amarillo every week. What a great opportunity we have as the church to to welcome them, to help them acclimate to our city and to our culture. 
That's one of the reasons why members of our church help teach ESL, English as a Second Language. Will Esler, Ann Scamahorn, and others help teach on Tuesday nights ESL to refugees and immigrants who, who are coming to our community. In fact, the fastest growing demographic in our city today are young Hispanics. That's one of the reasons why we have dedicated Orlando Lopez's time and, and, and resources to help start a chapter of Young Life at Caprock High School, the uh, high school that has predominantly Hispanic students there. And we've committed his time and resources to help him start a, a chapter of Young Life at uh, Caprock High School. We've seen several students come to Christ. In fact, many of those students now worship with us at 1105. If we want to reach the city of Amarillo with the good news of Jesus, we've got to be reaching out to those refugees and those immigrants who come. We've got to be encouraging the fastest growing demographic to know Christ, specifically young Hispanics. Yes, the church in Antioch grew rapidly as they preached the gospel of Jesus to anyone who would listen. And because the Lord was with them, three primary things that they did. They evangelized, they gave generously, and you'll see that they, they sent. Evangelism, giving generously, and sending. E-G-G-S. Here's a little picture to make sure we catch this acronym. Eggs, okay? Evangelism, giving generously, and sending. Let's say that with me. Evangelism, giving generously, and sending. These were the key ingredients for the church in Antioch as they grew exponentially, helping minister to so many more. Evangelism. As we talked about just a moment ago, initially the followers of Jesus only shared the good news of Jesus with fellow Jews. But we know from Genesis 12 that the Jews were God's chosen people. And actually in Deuteronomy, the Jews were told not to intermarry with the people in the land of Canaan. And so there was this mode of thinking among Jews that, well, they were God's chosen people and so they're the only ones who should be saved. But we also know from Genesis 12 that, well, Abraham was blessed to be a blessing. And we know from Genesis 1 that all of humanity has been created in the very image of God, that in the kingdom of God, all lives matter. And so we should seek to share the good news of God's love with anyone who will listen. And we know that God loves the whole world because God sent his one and only son here to this earth as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Of course, we can see that it wasn't just bold evangelism that helped the church in Antioch grow. Yes, they were evangelistic, but they were also very generous. Let's look again at verses 27 to 29 of our text. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Isn't that remarkable? Here the church in Antioch learns that there's a great famine coming through this prophet Agabus. And rather than worrying about how they're going to survive the famine, they decide to pool their resources together to help the church in Jerusalem survive the famine. How is it they were able to to be so selfless? I mean, like Jesus, they put the needs of others before their own. How is that possible? You know, this past September, our session made a similar decision As reports came in about the horrible flooding in Houston with Hurricane Harvey, many churches in our presbytery, which is basically the state of Texas, other churches in our presbytery said they were going to commit their Labor Day weekend offerings to help with Hurricane Harvey relief by specifically giving it to a a Presbyterian church in Houston so they might distribute those resources locally, knowing which ministries were being most effective in helping people rebuild their lives after Hurricane Harvey. 
Now, on a typical Labor Day weekend, we tend to bring in about ten dollars to $15,000 in our weekend offering on Labor Day weekend. And, and I learned from the business office that because we have this World Missions Endowment Fund, that we were going to be able to match that up to $20,000. And so we, we kind of gave the session this opportunity to say, look, there's an opportunity for us to, to give to help the churches in Houston. But as I shared a moment ago, we were in a budget deficit. In fact, we still are, $225,000 short from our budgeted revenue. But we felt God was calling us to do that. As we talked about which church we should give to, First Press Houston was an obvious choice for us. Because like us, they're a downtown church. And many of us have uh, children actually go to First Press Houston. And the, the missions director at First Press Houston, Mary Floyd Federer, is a child of this church. She grew up as a little girl in our church, singing in the church choir, as you're going to hear in a moment ago, the kids' choir is going to come up and sing. She grew up as a child in our church. And I actually was an associate pastor at First Press Houston many years ago. And I know that's a missions-minded church that would do a great job stewarding the resources we gave to them. Now, when we shared this opportunity to give, to help with Hurricane Harvey relief, we were in a budget shortfall. It wasn't like we were rolling in money. We just had all this extra money to give. But we trusted God to provide, just as the church at Antioch was trusting God to provide. And by God's amazing grace, when we typically only bring in about $15,000 on Labor Day weekend, because we made this the focus of our giving, we were able to give, we all, y'all gave $30,000 match our $20,000, allowed us to give $50,000 to help with Hurricane Harvey relief. That'd be a good time to say like hallelujah, amen, or clap if you want. I mean, that was awesome that that we did that. A few weeks ago, I was having lunch with uh, Elder Chuck Alexander and uh, one of our newer members, and the newer member just shared with us, man, thanks for giving us that opportunity. I had all these different places I wanted to give to help with Hurricane Harvey, and it just really comforted me to know that if I gave to my church, Our church was going to give to a sister church on the ground in Houston who would know exactly how to distribute those resources. And we talked about how, you know, at that time, we're a bit of a budget shortfall, but we just knew it was the right thing to do. And then Chuck Alexander said these words, we needed to do it. It was the right thing to do. You know, sometimes we have to do things that don't always make sense immediately, but we know it's the right thing to do. We have to be generous even in the time of our own shortfall. Now, fiscally, you need to know I'm a very conservative person. I drive cars for like 10 plus years because I don't like spending, buying new cars because it's a depreciating asset. All vehicles depreciate unless you have like an antique of some kind. So I don't like buying cars and I don't buy new. I buy used cars. I mean, I'm, I'm fiscally pretty conservative guy. But sometimes you just got to give because it's the right thing to do. To the world, it doesn't make sense to give to someone else when your own finances seem uncertain. And yet God calls us to trust him in our giving. It didn't make financial sense for us to give money to First Press Houston when we had our own shortfall at the time. It didn't make sense for the church in Antioch to give to the church in Jerusalem when they knew they would be affected by the famine as well. And it doesn't really make sense that despite our rebellion and our continual sin, that God would send his son to die on a cross for our sins. It doesn't really make sense. I mean, why would God love us? We haven't always been faithful to him. Why is he faithful to us? We call that grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. We don't deserve it. We simply receive it as the free gift that it is. And Jesus tells us that freely we have received, freely we should give. We need to tell others the good news about Jesus. We need to live as generous givers, giving back to God out of gratitude for all that God has done for us. And we need to be people who are willing to send others to do the work of God's kingdom. William Muleman, former chaplain at Duke University, says it this way about the church in Antioch. 
the new congregation in Antioch, composed of Gentiles who a short time before were considered questionable subjects for the gospel, respond generously to the appeal for help in Judea. The story reminds us of the reports in Acts 2, 44-45 and Acts 4, 32-37 that the followers of Christ shared their material possessions and had all things in common. The sharing of material goods continues to be a hallmark of the authentic Christian community. It is also a tangible sign that Gentiles really have been converted for they evidence the time-honored Jewish practice of philanthropy. Conversion is proved by charity. Genuine repentance is accompanied by a change in one's relationship to one's own goods as well as generosity to the poor. Conversion is proved by charity. When we truly grasp the depth of God's grace, that he would love us in spite of our sin, that he would give his only son for our salvation, we can't help but be generous back in gratitude for what God has done for us. You know, tithing isn't mentioned much in the, Old Test- in the New Testament. It's mentioned a lot in the Old Testament, not much in the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, in the first century church, they gave well above of a tithe. And they did that because as they looked at what God had given them, their grace and their generosity overflowed in gratitude for God's generosity towards them. His tithing is really the starting point for generosity, not necessarily the destination. That's one of the reasons why our church, when we built an operating budget last October, we said we're going to give 15% of the money that comes in to local and global missions. I don't know if you've had a chance to see the map that we've recently put up with the Communications and Properties Committee have put up a beautiful map in the Great Hall that shows the world and where we have missionaries all over the world and and in our own country. We used to have 12 missionaries. Now we have 30 missionaries. How is it possible to have so many missionaries? It's because we give. Seven years ago, only 6.5% of our operating budget went to missions. Now, 15% goes to missions. Several of these missionaries, if you read the list, are actually children of our church who grew up here. Mary Margaret Hagen, Tim Hagen, and Luke Gossett are now serving as missionaries around the world, doing the work of, of God's kingdom. Yes, the church in Antioch was, was evangelistic, it, was, it, generous, it gave generously, and it was a sending church. Where they send this gift to the church in Jerusalem, and as we'll see next week, they send Paul and Barnabas to go and plant churches all over the Mediterranean. But how did they know to do this? How did they know that it was evangelism, generous giving, and sending that was going to help them grow? How did they know to act this way? Well, simply put, they looked to Jesus, Jesus Christ, who shared the good news of the kingdom with anyone who would listen, with a promiscuous Samaritan woman at a well or with a Roman centurion, or with a Canaanite woman whose daughter was possessed. Jesus evangelized to anyone who would listen. And we can see at the cross that Jesus gave it all. He gave generously his own life so that we might be saved. And right before his ascension, as we read in Acts chapter 1, right before he ascends to heaven, the risen Jesus commissions his disciples, saying, go and make disciples of all nations. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Is as they looked to Jesus, they could see that he was evangelistic, he generously gave, and he was ascending Savior. Our mission statement is to discover and live the way of Christ and the expansive grace of God. This morning, the church in Antioch reminds us that the way of Jesus is evangelism, generous giving, and sending, a key ingredient to a growing church. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you so much for your generosity towards us, that while we were yet sinners, you sent your son here to this earth to pay the price for our sins. 
We thank you for the model of evangelism that he gave, that he was always sharing the good news with anyone who would listen. And so did the church in Antioch, God. They shared with anybody who would listen. Lord, help us to be a church that's bold in its evangelism, generous in its giving, and faithful in its sending. Oh, God, help us to recognize that we're all missionaries sent out by you to be a light of your love. So by your spirit, help us to be a light of your love in all that we say and do. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your son who is the Christ. And all God's people said, amen.